The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Nick Jasinski, a senior writer on the stock picking team at Barron's, filling in for Lauren Rublin today. Thanks for joining us for a look at what's ahead in markets. My guest is Keith Lerner, who's co-chief investment officer and chief market strategist at Truist Advisory Services in Atlanta. He's focused on asset allocation and portfolio strategy across equities and fixed income, and he uses both fundamental and technical analysis to drive his views. Keith has been in the business for more than 25 years, and I suspect he'll have plenty of interesting insights and recommendations for listeners today. So please submit your questions in the Q&A section. Welcome, Keith. Thanks for coming to Barron's Live. Hey, uh, great to be with you, Nick, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, definitely a timely uh, time for us to get together. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it's been an ugly past six weeks for the stock market after a pretty great six weeks or so before that, from June to August, and then from August to now. What's your what's your broad investment outlook for the remainder of this year? And maybe you can split that into like the very short term and, and the slightly longer term view. Sure, Nick. In fact, yeah, maybe I'll just provide a little bit of context of where we've come from and then where we stand today. And, and then, of course, focus on where we think we may be going, which is the, probably the most interest for the folks listening. But, you know, big picture, um, the last few years, we've been big bulls on this market, especially coming out of the pandemic. We had huge stimulus. Um, you know, we thought earnings were underappreciated. Uh, but earlier this year in February, our tone and our posture started to shift. And a big part of that, uh, even before the kind of these big inflation readings, was just the pivot from the Fed by itself we thought was going to be a, a big deal. And that's even accelerated. So, um, you know, pr- back in around mid-August, when we had that big rally, we rallied about 17%. You know, the market went from pricing in a recession at the June lows to pricing in a soft landing at the August highs. At that point, we were pretty vocal about, um, you know, trimming equities for those that were over allocated to, uh, to equities. But I would say, Nick, you know, we're, and we're still more on the cautious defensive side overall. But I will say we just published a note on Friday. We don't think it makes sense to become increasingly cautious right now after you just went down almost 15 percent in a straight line. Um, given how much you know, sentiment and some of our technical indicators are, are, are suggesting things are becoming you know, somewhat as far as the extreme short term. But again, in context, um, we still think the road ahead is somewhat choppy. So let me know, you know if you want to dig a little bit more into some of the indicators, a little bit more of the short term, or where you'd like to go next. Yeah, sure. So some of that has to do with the technicals, right? We're, we're at, on the S&P 500 today, we're right at 3,680 points. That's just a few points above the, uh, the low from, from June. Um, it's been pretty range bound since then. What, what are the technicals telling you about the path from here? Sure. So, uh, you know, all eyes are on those mid June lows. Uh, that's where the market bottomed out, you know, a little bit above 3,600 on the S&P. And just for some context, you know, right now we're around, we're down around 24%. If you look back historically, the median decline around recession is about 24%. The average is about uh, 3,900. So, yeah, listen, all eyes are here. I will say, uh, a lot of discussion whether this, this, this uh, level will hold or not. 
but I think in some ways, my view would be it'd be better to break the lows because you get a, a, just a little bit more panic in that creates more of a sustainable, at least short-term bottom. Because if I look at some, of, at some of the indicators and we try to quantify the environment, um, we can look at some technical metrics like the percentage of stocks above the 50-day moving average. That's below 5%, right? We were, If you remember, back in the August highs, um, we, that number was around 90. So we've moved from everything moving up together to everything moving down. Same thing with the, the percentage of stocks above the 200-day moving average, now around 15%. That's one of the lowest points of this uh, cycle. And then on Friday, uh, a lot of discussion that we saw kind of put-to-call ratios spiked above one. That's the highest amount of fear in the options market that we've seen since early on during the pandemic. And again, we've moved down 15%. So I, listen, I, I think we're getting closest to some type of short-term, you know, stabilization we're starting to see even that today but in context you know even if we get that how much upside do we think we have we think we're probably you know at the, at the top end of this probably you know 4,900 4,400 is probably the top end of any type of near-term range so I would kind of keep that in mind but our message is again I want to press a more negative view at least not short term when you're already down 15 percent and we're seeing fear and indiscriminate selling that we've seen the last few weeks yeah, it's amazing just going from extreme to extreme. Um, one of my colleagues here at Barron's likes to call this, it's a violently flat market where it's uh, um, So another thing today, the uh, the VIX, the volatility index, um, it's back, it's at 31.2. That was below 20 in, in mid-August. What, what's the VIX telling you? So the VIX is telling you that there's some fear in the market. I mean, obviously, historically, at a major balance, we see that move higher. Uh, you know, I will say, you know, a lot of people were looking even back in June for the VIX to hit 40 and never got there. We still had a good rally. So, listen, I think it's good that it's moving the right direction. I think the put-to-call ratio is, you know, positive. I think the AAI sentiment is positive. The one thing that I will say, Nick, one thing we haven't seen as much as some of these indicators are showing some stress, the equity outflows have been pretty benign. Typically, we historically, we've seen more aggressive selling from the individual investors at lows. We just haven't seen that yet. But again, I think overall, if you take the collective sentiment, I, I think it's probably one of the bigger assets, at least short term for the market. But I think the bigger picture, as we look at the next six to 12 months, I think the big picture view that we can't lose sight of is we have the most aggressive global central bank tightening cycle of the last 30 or 40 years. The, the Fed shift is with the most aggressive in about 40 years. And the other point um, that we've talked about this a little bit is, um, you know, I, I think the way investors have to think about you know, the next few years, next few months is different than the last 10 years because the Fed is no longer perpetually on call. And that means we have a much more tactical market than this kind of V-shaped recoveries with, with the Fed perpetually on call that we've been accustomed to over the last decade or so. Yeah, that, that so-called Fed put seems not to be there anymore with the Fed more focused on getting inflation down as opposed to uh, boosting it up. Um, so that that's a good way to get into the, uh, um, I mean, everything's about the Fed and interest rates these days on a macro level, of course. Um, Powell was pretty explicit last week at the FOMC meeting that it's going to take a recession and higher unemployment to get inflation down. Um, what what do you expect from the economy and inflation from here? And, and how does this cycle, uh, what's the impact on future cycles after this uh, this current hiking cycle? Sure. When you look at the kind of the, the weight of the evidence and, and indicators, again, no one calls recessions perfectly at tops and bottoms. But the evidence is moving to us that the probability of a recession is now the base case over the next uh, you know six to twelve months. And we can look at things um, like the inverted yield curve, right? The deepest inversion in the curve 
um, you know, since at least uh, 2000, and actually it looks like now closer to like the 1980s. So that's one signal. Now that an inverted yield curve has a long and, and variable lead, as we often talk about, mm -hmm. you can look at things like the um, the, the uh, index of leading indicators down six months in a row, and now on a year-over-year -year basis, zero. Historically, that's preceded um, recession. Uh, so you put you look at that. Um, you look at um, you know again all the central bank these supersized rate hikes that really just actually happened over the last three to six months that work with the lag. We think those are the ingredients to, to still see a recession early into next year and maybe even sooner. And I think that's what the, the market is is trying to discount right now. Um, the one thing that's that's been you know unusual and I think. You know, a lot of discussion is the employment side has been so strong and people say, hey, how can we be in recession if employment? Well, employment is a lagging indicator. What's notable, what the Fed said with their kind of summary of economic um, outlook is they're expecting um, the unemployment rate to rise, uh, I think, by uh, almost a percent over the next year. Mm -hmm. Historically, you've never seen a rise in the unemployment rate at the, you know, to that degree without a recession. And lastly, since the 1950s, um, it, it, it has always taken a recession to get the inflation rate below 5%. I'm sorry, to get, yes, to get the inflation rate back down when you're above 5%. Historically, you generally have had a recession. You, I mean, there are some things we have to you know, consider. Like there are some abnormal uh, things that are abnormal because of this pandemic, right? The mm -hmm. supply chains, all these other things that, you know, there are things that are somewhat different, but that's kind of the historical perspective. Yeah, of course, and then the war in Europe, what that's done to commodity prices, that's not a not not a clear parallel though either. Um, so I want to skip ahead to to thank you for all the listeners submitting questions. Um, there's one from from Brian, which uh, I think makes sense to ask now. Um, like you mentioned, with the Fed funds rate above four percent sometime next year, that's a very different world. Um, Brian asks, what's what's the appropriate market multiple that investors should assign to stocks in a higher interest environment that we're going to see? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question, and the reality is no one knows the exact answer to that. I mean, there's, there's kind of you know counter trends on this, right? On, on the one hand, if you start for the kind of a saying historical average for the S and P is about 16. Well, that historical average, um, it, the composition has really shifted from let's say 30 or 40 years ago, where you have a lot more higher multiple, higher growth stocks. So I would say, without the interest rate side of it, I, I think you can make a pretty good case, especially with like tech being you know, more than 25% of the index, and that's not even including other growth sectors like communications and discretionary. You can say that you're, you're, because the composition shifts, your, your multiple should be higher than average, just again, before we take into account the interest rate environment that we're in. Um, but, but then again, now that you have a, you know, an aggressive central bank policy, a lot of uncertainty, you would offset that, right? Um, when you look back, right, I mean, right now, we're about a 15 and a half multiple for the market. The equated S&P, like the average stocks that takes away some of those really heavy tech companies is around the 13 multiple today. I think people aren't you know, familiar with that. So I would say, and, and we look back historically with inflation, if you can get it down you know, back below 4%, you know, somewhere around the 15 multiple probably makes some sense in that environment. The question becomes, what is going to be the trough multiple of this cycle? And that's hard to determine. Um, when you look back at 2018, when the Fed was super aggressive, uh, you know, we got down to a 13 multiple, uh, as mm -hmm. an example. Interesting. Yeah, we'll certainly be talking more about inflation and the Fed and all that over the coming month. Um, next week, we get September jobs numbers and then CPI the week after that. 
Um, and then in the first week of November is the next FOMC meeting, also October jobs numbers. Then the midterm election is right after that. Um, this coming week, it's not as eventful on the data front, but there's still a few releases to watch. Um, I'm interested in tomorrow's consumer confidence index from the conference board. That's for September. That's expected to come in at 104 points, which would be up slightly from August, but still way off the peak that we saw last summer in 2021. And then on Friday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will release the August personal income and expenditures report. And there's all kinds of interesting things in there for, for econ nerds, but the key number for, for most investors will be the core personal consumption expenditures price index, which is a mouthful, but that's the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. And that's expected to be up 4.8% year over year in August after rising 4.6% in July. So actually inflation picking up in the core number there. Um, and then on the earnings front, the biggest uh, earnings will be from Nike and Micron Technology, both on Thursday. And then Q3 earnings season really picks up after that. Um, Nike stock has had a tough year. It's down 42% year to date. And then this, these results are going to be for their fiscal first quarter, which ends in August. Sales are expected to be about flat from a year ago, but earnings per share are seen dropping 21%. Um, and the things to focus on there really will be gross margins, um, any management commentary on inventory levels, supply chain, all that. Um, and also China. Nike is a big, China is a big market for Nike. And, and uh, um, we've talked a lot about the challenges there this year. Also on Thursday, um, Porsche is going to have its IPO in Frankfurt. That's Volkswagen selling a, a big stake in that. Um, the valuation is going to be above $70 billion. So it's, it's the biggest IPO in Europe in a long time. Um, and my colleague, Andrew Barry, he recently recommended buying Volkswagen shares as a way to benefit from the IPO because Volkswagen is going to be a big shareholder of, uh, of Porsche. Um, so on the, on the earnings side, we talked about the multiple. Um, Q3 earnings season comes up in just a few weeks. Estimates have been coming down since the end of the second quarter earnings season. Keith, what's your outlook for, for earnings in Q3 and, and then next year as well? Yeah, well, I will say earnings have still held up remarkably well. I mean, they have started to be revised down, not only for the forward quarters, but for the next 12 months. And if you think that the economy is going to continue to slow down, which which we do, that should feed into earnings. Again, I think that's what the market is pricing in now. So I think I think the main question, as opposed to an exact number, I think you have to say, you know, what's the what's the risk? Is it to the upside or the downside? I think the earnings number is to the downside because you know we we have more to go on those earning estimates and typically even if we have a mild recession which is debatable um you tend to see you know at least a 15 or 20 percent haircut to earnings and we're just starting to see the early signs of that as well and you know the other thing is um you know we talked about multiples a minute before um you know interest rates are moving up you know so that's going to be a higher cost for businesses as well I mean, looking at this uh, two-year note this morning, I think it's you know, right now as I look at it, it's 429. Wow. So that's all going to impact things. But I, listen, I think earnings are going to come down. I think the question always into earnings season is how the stocks react to the earnings when they, if you see a bad number, like you saw as an example when FedEx had their number, like that was a surprise. At least that lowered the bar into earnings season. Mm -hmm. So I think the main thing you want to look for is not just what the earnings number is, is coming to the season. How do stocks react? Do they react positively to bad news that will give you a tell at least short term that things are getting you know a bit washed out and maybe um you know one thing nick too i know you know we still think it's going to be a challenging backup but i will say you know just something that you know we're all focused on the next week and you know a few months i will say as we look out further than just kind of short-term trading i think it is important to point out that for the first time in over a decade you know, yields are productive again, right? I mean, for the last 10 years, investors had no other options in the equity market. 
So at least now, even if you think somebody, you know, you, for investors that actually want to have fixed income exposure or have some, you, you're getting praised pretty well at the short end of the curve today. And longer term, as stocks reset, even though we think it's challenging near term, when we, when we do our long-term capital markets, say the next five and 10 years, those numbers actually will be going up based on this pretty sharp reset in valuations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fixed income is actually providing some income for the first time in years. Like you mentioned, over 4% on a two-year treasury. That's that's a, that's certainly that's attractive enough for a lot of investors out there and for folks who are maybe keeping some money out of the stock market, waiting for things to calm down a bit, park it there, get 4% annualized, and uh, not a bad option. Um, in, in fixed income in general, what's what's most attractive to you in, in that world right now? We want to keep it simple, high quality, you know, government type paper, um, because as you just mentioned, Nick, you know, you're getting 430 on the two year. I think, you know, these yields are overshooting globally. We saw kind of what happened with the bank, um, sorry, with the UK, with this big fiscal package. It's interesting because historically, if you came in with a big fiscal package, that would be very equity market friendly. But the way the market is reading this is saying we have an inflation problem. Now you're pouring, um, you know, more gasoline on the fire. Uh, but so I would say, given the economic slowdown that we think is likely to continue, stay high quality. You can barbell that somewhat with something on the short end. And then for investors, um, as we look into next year, because we think the economy is going to slow, that should eventually cap how high yields can go. So we're barbell on the short end of the curve, say like the, um, like, you know, between the one and five year, and then something between like 10 and 15 years. Because eventually, when the economy does slow down, that should, um, like I said, cap rates. Normally, you know, the ten-year Treasury continues to rise until the Fed's almost done within, you know, within a, you know a few months of that. So that's something to be thinking about into into next year. Mm-hmm. So, you, so, so, uh, state, you've got a barbell approach in your equity sector recommendations as well, right? Energy stocks on one end. And then those kind of classic defensive sectors, utilities, healthcare, consumer staples on the other. Can yep. you explain your reasoning for that barbell strategy as well, please? Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, as far as the sector positioning, uh, the last few years, we were much more cyclically oriented because we were in a growing economy. But now you have a slowing economy, slowing profits, and, 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 and um, you know, again, the Fed increasing rates. So foreign is beautiful right now. Uh, and um, not, not to say there's going to be a lot of you know, a lot of upside in these names, but on a relative basis, they're hanging in pretty well. So that's why we like the defensive areas like staples, healthcare, utilities. The one area we've been overweight since uh, early 2021 is energy. And, and that's just kind of a heads against the geopolitical risk about supply side disruptions. Uh, energy certainly has been hit here more recently. So it's something we're keeping an, an eye on. But also uh, the administration is looking to, you know, refill, um, you know, refill at about $80, the strategic petroleum um, mm-hmm. backdrop. So that should lend a little bit support. But again, the overall structure is saying being being more defensive with energy as a hedge on the geo, geopolitical side. Uh, we still think that makes sense, uh, given that we think the, the, the slowdown continues. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners are, are very interested in tech stocks. What, when does technology, what, 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 are the, what do you need to see for technology stocks to be a buy again? Yeah. It's technology stocks are an interesting place, right? Um, we're neutral on them right now, which, you know, um, which isn't a big call, right? Uh, but I would say there's, there's kind of competing forces. Normally, into a slowing economy, you know, investors will rotate towards these big technology companies that have these huge balance sheets, lots of cash flow, uh, and that's fine. And we're even seeing a little bit of that here 
you know, today. But when we look back at kind of the valuations of tech, you're still trading around the 1920 or 19 or 20 multiple. If you if you look at a chart on a, a thumb over the pandemic, that's basically among the highest levels of the last you know uh, 10, 15 years. And then you look at the relative valuations of tech to the overall market, it's trading at over a 25% premium, which is also towards the high end of the scale. And the other thing um, is that the earning trends, right, the earnings momentum for these big cap companies relative to the overall market has actually weakened this year. And when you buy tech, you buy tech because, the, because in a slowing economy, you want stability and you want those earning trends and they just haven't delivered. So what we'll be looking for to get more bullish on tech is for those earnings start to shift. As we start to see those earning estimate cuts for the overall market that we talked about, does the technology sector earning trends actually show some relative outperformance. We also look at the technicals on a relative basis and an absolute basis. Those are kind of at the low end right now, so that's something we're watching. But at this point, technology does not appear to be leadership, though we are, like I said, we are watching it given that, you know, as the economy slows, that would be a natural place for investors to rotate to. But instead of trying to, you know, front run it, we want a little bit more evidence to see that's actually happening mm -hmm. and in the fundamentals as well. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. If you're paying a premium, Valuation multiple, you want to have premium uh, fundamental trends as well. Currency markets also, the dollar index has is, is, uh, um, been rising dramatically this year and really since the end of last year as the Fed has been hiking faster than a lot of other central banks. Um, and then some of the, just the individual one-day moves in currencies, like again, just last week, Thursday, of course, Japan's Ministry of Finance said it's going to intervene to support the yen. The currency jumped two percent in one day, which is a, that's a big move for for any currency on a single day. Um, then the British pound, uh, Keith was mentioning that the, that that fiscal policy announcement that they had in the UK, which was more spending. Usually, that's a good thing, but but uh, the the investors took that as it's going to need more borrowing, so bond yields jumped. And uh, um, the British pound dropped three and a half percent versus a dollar on Friday. Again, that's a huge move. It's a 37 year low. It's like a dollar and nine cents now buys a pound. Um, hey, Nick. It's, hey, can you hear me? Back. I'm, I'm back. Yeah, I don't know. All right. I'm um, here. Hey, no problem. So um, just one, uh, one, one topic that's also been kind of on my mind lately is the, the midterm elections. Is that something that investors should be thinking about? How do stocks typically perform around elections? So the punchline for the midterm elections is this. It's important, but, but it's not the only thing that's important. And when we've done, we've done a lot of work on the election cycles. And I'm, I'm, our main advice is don't mix portfolios and politics. Because if you think about history, what tends to happen is the, the business cycle tends to trump what's happening with you know, the elections or the midterms. And maybe Nick, just provide a little bit more tangible evidence of that. You know, if you go back to like say 2000, right? Whoever came in to be president in 2000 was coming into the administration when, you know, when we had a technology bubble that was about to implode and the Fed started to be aggressive. And you had one of the longest expansions in history. We would argue whoever came in to, um, to be president or what was Congress's makeup at the time would have had a challenging time. You fast forward to 2009, you had almost the opposite side, right? You had mm -hmm. one of the worst 10-year returns in history, really cheap valuations and aggressive Fed. 
And then, you know, then we think about, you know, in 2020, we fast forward and a lot of anxiety around who the president was going to be and, you know, what sectors would perform best. Our main point back then is it was going to be more important what happens with the vaccines than, than and that we were early in an expansion than who was president. And we saw that bore out. And then also, Nick, if you remember back in, you know, when, when Biden was elected, a lot of people said, hey, the energy sector is going to get really hit. And, and that's not, that wasn't the case yeah. because what happened? Supply got cut back. So I would just say, I'm not saying don't ignore it. doesn't mean it doesn't have impact. doesn't mean it can't affect individual sectors and groups. But our work suggests that the business cycle and other factors, what the Fed is doing, what's happening in China, what the earnings are at, um, tend to matter more than, than, than the election cycle. And the last point is, if you follow the historical cycle in the midterms, you, you tend to have a bumpy September and then rallying to year end. I think a lot of people are showing those analog charts. Listen, I hope that happens, but I would say the fundamental and macro backdrop, especially we go into recessions more challenging, regardless who, who comes into office or if it ships, um, you know, in November. Yeah, it makes sense. Don't mix portfolio and politics. Um, so I want to get to some some listener questions. Thanks, everybody, for, for submitting them. Um, there's a couple of different versions of this question, and, and maybe it's an unfair one, but um, how do you how do you call a bottom in the S&P 500? Have we seen it already? How will you know that that's there? We haven't really had that capitulation. That's a term that people like to like to talk about. Yeah, listen, I, I, I think the way we think about markets is a little bit different. A lot of folks want to talk about, you know, this is the bottom and this is the top, and it's very heroic to say, hey, I called the bottom and the top. And what we try to do instead, and we manage money, we just don't talk about it, is think about risk reward. Look, in, 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 in March of 2020, our advice very plainly was the risk reward was very favorable, rebalance portfolios, increase equities, not because we knew it was the low, it's that even if you went, you know, even if you went lower, that we, the, the kickback off of bottoms are so strong that, that, you know, and we had the Fed with, you know, blazing in as well. So today, um, you know, the risk reward, you know, in our view, is still somewhat challenged. Maybe on, the sh on a short-term basis, like this 3,600 level, the oversold indicators, I think we can have a shorter-term low. But it's hard to say with confidence that that's the, the, the low of this cycle because historically, markets haven't had a bottom uh, until the recession began. Now, we can argue whether we're in a recession or not. Our indicators suggest that we have not been, but we're headed there as well. I would say we're, again, I don't know if we're, we're going to get there, but when we look back historically, where the risk reward really starts to get interesting is if you have a 30% decline for the market, that would bring you back towards mm -hmm. the um, uh, around 3,400, the pre-pandemic highs. And at that point, when we do studies about saying, okay, if you buy the market when you're down you know, 30%, the risk reward, especially over the next two, three years, tends to be pretty positive. And you're discounting a lot of um, you know, um, bad news. But as far as more direct to your question, I mean, you look at sentiment indicators, uh, new lows, you're looking at, you know, valuations, but we don't always, we don't always bottom at the same level. So I'm hesitant to say what number it is. A lot of times we know it when we see it. And the other thing is, historically, for those bottoms, historically, you do need some type of pivot in the Fed. Most market bottoms happen when, when the Fed is easing and when it's closer to an economic indicators are bottoming. It's mm -hmm. hard to say that economic indicators are bottoming today. I think it actually will get slower over the next six months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Richard asks about your, your views on TIPS. Those are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Um, for the listeners, that's uh, the principle of those securities increases with inflation and decreases with deflation as measured by the Consumer Price Index. 
So I think tips, because they're more based on what's called break-evens or the expectations, they've actually become somewhat more attractive. We're not invested in them or have them recommended today, but there's something we're looking at because they were very overvalued in our view um, you know, earlier this year. But as expectations, when you look at market-implied expectations of inflation have come down, they seem somewhat more, you know, somewhat more attractive. So I would say, um, you know, within a overall fixed-income portfolio, you know, I, you know, it could make sense. But again, that's that's kind of a, up to the individual person and their advisors, or if they're doing it themselves. Again, we're not in it directly, but I do think they're starting to look more attractive, and they also are higher-quality fixed-income. So. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's where the area you want to take a higher quality fixed income as a whole. Um, got it. So, Keith, I just want to end with a, a question from, um, excuse me, this is a question from Greg, and it's a little bit maybe more of a philosophical one. Um, how do you balance your, your fundamental and technical analysis? You're, you're one of the, the few people I speak with who really can can participate in both camps, um, and I think that that's what that's what gives you, makes you different than a lot of the other folks out there, how you blend the two. So how do you balance the two and incorporate that into your, into your recommendations and views? Yeah, well, it's very important to how I approach markets because listen, all the strategy, all the guys like me talking heads, there's no crystal ball, right? And you have to have a heavy, a heavy dose of humility. But what we try to do with our work is get the weight of the evidence in our, uh, our uh, side. So I'll give you an example, how we use this more recently. Um, as a technician, off the August lows, we had a lot, of, a lot of what was called breath thrust, huge buying. We can test that out and say, historically, when we have these breath thrusts, this massive panic buying, that's a real positive for the market. But and I, if, I was, if I was just purely on the technical side, that would have had me like really leaning in bullish. But what kept us mm-hmm. back is at the, at the highs, when we were in August, we were around an 18 PE with earnings risk. So those two things didn't jive. So it, it kept us back from, from – you know, endorsing that move was from a technical standpoint. And then conversely, you know, during the pandemic, when everyone, a lot of folks were saying, hey, this market's too expensive, you're trading at a 22 multiple, the, the sentiment um, and, the, and the fundamental earning trends kept us on the right side of the trade. So it also tells us, you know, sometimes we also impress our views as, as far as, okay, this is what we're thinking, what is the market telling us and where could it be right or wrong? So this, again, use the mm-hmm. way the evidence combines sentiment, technicals and fundamentals us is, is a really good strategy to at least have a higher probability outcome decision making mm-hmm, process. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. Um, thanks, Keith. I think that's all the time we have today. Sorry again for the uh, technical difficulties earlier. Thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in and sticking with us through that. Um, we hope you'll join us again tomorrow on Barron's Live. It's going to be my colleague, Eric Savitz, speaking with AOL co-founder Steve Case, who's now he's chairman and CEO of Revolution, which is a, it's a VC tech firm. Um, focused on startups and entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. That's his big thing these days. So it should be an interesting call. Thank you again for listening and have a great day, everyone. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.